Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 307 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about the world of writing and publishing. I'm Valerie Koo, CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses, useful resources, and a fantastic, supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series, and many other series, upcoming series that she's busy editing at the moment. How are you? I'm busy, Val. I'm busy. (laughs) Not only am I editing, which is, you know, as you know, a fairly kind of all brain consuming activity, but I am nearly done. So everybody can take a deep breath. I'm going to stop talking about it soon, hopefully. Um, So I'm nearly done with that, with the the structural edit, which is quite exciting. Um, It's been, you know, it's an interesting thing because I haven't really looked at the manuscript for, uh, I don't know, I reckon at least six months, like since I finished writing it, Mm. edited it like the one time or two times before I sent, before I submitted it, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's been at least six months since I've had a look at it, um, which is always a really interesting moment because it's just, you know, like someone else wrote it now, which is quite fun. So you can kind of just, I'm looking at it quite dispassionately, taking on board the feedback, mm. but just, you know, I'm just moving stuff around and getting rid of stuff and um, and also quite enjoying being back in that world because, you know, I'd forgotten about that. Yes. Well, I've written a whole another manuscript in the meantime. So I, you know, it's quite fun to be back in this world. I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a good place to be. So that's good. But I'm also. Remind us. What? I'm not going to well, tell remember, you anything remind about us it. When it's oh, coming yeah. Okay. Oh. Well, I can tell you it's coming out in 2020. Um, okay. At this stage, sure. September 2020. So um, I will confirm everything and I will, like, I will talk about it. It will be on like Donkey Kong. As soon as I have <laughs> the green light, you will be so sick of hearing <laughs> me talk about it. Uh, but for the time being, I'm just, I'm, you know, keeping my powder dry, so to speak. And I'm just, okay. you know, so I'm talking very vaguely about this at present. Sorry, people. It's, I know it's boring as, but that's just how it is right now. Um, and in the mm-hmm. meantime, I'm also busy sending out signed copies of all of my other books. Um, so I have a special offer on at the moment where I'm uh, offering only for awesome. Australian Uh, readers slash listeners unfortunately because the postage just kills um but I'm offering signed copies for you know the festive slash holiday season so if there is a child in your life or you but you know feel free to buy it for yourself um Mm. I am offering signed copies of all of the A.L. Tate novels uh to be sent out it's only uh the offer's only available until the 6th of December so if it's something that you would be keen on that you're you know a little special thing for under the tree or whatever for your special someone, then get in now. And I'll put mm. the link in the show notes. Uh, I'm, the, all the details are in a blog post on my website at alisontate.com, but I'll put all the uh, put the link in the show notes for you. So I'm sending those out. I'm signing my name. I'm, you know, I'm also. I love it when I get a signed copy, like if from when I was little, just getting a signed copy from an author was just so Well, special. it is special. You know what I mean? I've still got And I books. do like to, you know, I do like to uh, dedicate them to the person. So there's an, off, an option there for you to send me the name and I will actually write it to that particular mm. person um, with a little message that I put in, in all of my books. Um, and it is, yeah, I, I just think it's lovely that kids can see the you know, the relationship that this is actually written by someone. I think that's what yeah. what uh, what makes it very special for them. But in my other world, because, you know, I have many worlds going on at any given time, I've actually been doing, would you believe, this late in the year, I've actually done several school mm. visits um, just, mm. you know, in the last kind of week or two. So I've been... It is. I know. I was a bit surprised, but yeah, I've been to a a couple of schools and I've, you know, downloaded my brain um, for those kids, which has been, which has been fun. And I'm also in the other other part of my world. um, uh, Book boy, my son, is preparing to launch his new single. Um, So, and of course, your book boys. I'm book boys, Rody slash Mummager. Although he now that he's (laughs) fifteen, he is taking on more of the stuff himself. He's got his own networks these days. Um, and, you know, young musicians these days, he's so tech savvy and stuff. So he's got all this whole group mm-hmm. of friends and they all work together to kind of, you know, facilitate the best way to do things. Like they try different things and they report back and it's like, well, that didn't work that well. Yes. Why don't you try this kind of thing? So um, he's got a bit of that going on now, which is great. Uh, so my job is basically just to kind of provide a steadying hand and transportation and 
you know, the credit card where required. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, roadie. so it's uh, his new single will be out in the next couple of weeks. So if you are interested in, you know, keeping up with that or having a listen to it, maybe follow him on Facebook at Joe Visa Music, um, and I'll put the link in the show notes. But that's J-O-E-V-I-S-S-E-R Music, um, and you can keep up to date with, you know, exactly when it goes because it's going out to all the streaming platforms, etc. So it's uh, it's a bit of an undertaking, you know. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, of course, if you've got uh, kids around that age, it's so inspirational to see another kid that age, doing, you know, being so proactive and getting out there and yeah, doing stuff. Yeah, so it's, definitely good to yeah, follow cool. Um, So, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. What about you, Val? What are you doing? Oh, what am I doing? I'm dressed up at the moment. I'm in my fancy threads what? as I record this with you because I'm going to um, uh, the Lord Mayor's Christmas party this evening. What, you say so, you're dressed up now? You know, yeah, because I have to go and I live far away. Like I have to go into the city. I've got stuff, other stuff to do, oh, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not going to bring a change of clothes and then dress, No, you know so you're I mean. all zhuzhed up in your finery for the full day. I know. So it's um, – and I've got to wear heels. I, I suppose I should put some like thongs in my handbag or something. Yeah, I would just wear know. the thongs and put the heels in your handbag oh. for later, don't you think? So oh, true, no. so true. So there's that. And um, uh, I am, oh, in time for Christmas, I am releasing another set of creative oh. journals oh. for those people who enjoyed the creative journals or want to use um, creative journals as Christmas presents. So they feature my artwork on the cover and they're over at ValerieKoo.com. And, um, yeah, they're great little gifts because they're um, – They've all got an inspirational and or motivational quote on every page, and I quite like that because it's a little bit like quote bingo, you know, like you open the <laughs> yeah you open the page and see what quote is going to impact you today. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, so there's maybe that. We should instigate and a game of podcast bingo, you know, like maybe a drinking game for Christmas. Mean? Or maybe not, you know, ginger Drinking ginger beer or, or, or mineral water, whatever is your game of choice. But like every time Val says, you know, whatever she says, what do you say? Yeah. Every time I say, fair to middling, have a drink. Fair to middling. Yeah, so, oh my, we'd be drunk. I only say it like <laughs> once, once an episode. I'm just thinking that maybe you mightn't want to play it at 9 o'clock in the morning. That would be the only downside, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway. Yes. We'll have to think of a drinking game for the podcast, yes. Um, and apart from that, yes, it, even though it is quite late in the year, I've got quite a few full-day trainings for, uh, for people on how to write a business book. Oh. So that's going to be occupying me. I'll be flying to various places um, to deliver that in the next couple of wow. weeks. And, you know, it's just like got to do some Christmas shopping. It's funny, isn't it? Because you kind of get to this point in the year and, you, and you're just like, oh, the year's over, we might as well not worry. But there's no. actually still – not 40 over. but 40 days or you know 50 however many days I don't mm. even know how many days it's just endless days mm. um left so there's still stuff that you can do that's right. right oh and also another great Christmas present for the writer in your life is our book oh, so you want to be a writer <laughs> we're so good at this aren't we like really <laughs> for anyone who uh, wants to be a writer or has an inkling they want to explore the world of writing, uh, that's the book that Alice and I have written. And you can have a look at that at, uh, at writercenter.com.au slash book. And if anyone has read the book, we'd love it if you could leave us a review because that would make us really happy. Us really, it's like a gift to us, isn't it? It's like a little, yes. you know, if you want to throw a little gift at us for the end of the year just to get us through until the 31st, then a <laughs> review would be awesome. But a gift to you guys is um, there is a new children's literature prize that is being offered by HarperCollins, isn't there? There oh. is. It's very exciting. I mean, obviously I'm excited because this is my – this is my world and my excitement right here. Um, but, yes, HarperCollins has created the Matilda, which I think is lovely, um, a new Great. children's literature prize to discover new Australian stories. So if you write middle grade or young adult fiction, this one is for you. So, you know, polish that manuscript, get yourself ready. Uh, the winner of the prize will receive a publishing deal and a $10,000 advance against royalties, which is 
not a bad right. prize. Um, and according mm. to the press release, the prize seeks to discover and share exciting new stories from this country's best storytellers, whether emerging or established. So um, it's very, very exciting. And I think the entries are open now. The closing date is the 26th of January, 2020. Mm. The shortlist will be announced in April, 2020, and the winner announced in May. So if we put the link in the show notes to the information, as well as to where you need to go to submit your entry. Um, but, you know, I really encourage you to have a crack at this because if you've got a manuscript that is, you know, ready to go, if you've been tinkering away with it for, for ages or you've just finished it or whatever, make sure you polish it as much as you can because you want to give it the best possible chance. But you have not one thing to lose by entering this, not one single thing. Mm. Um, and competitions are a great way uh, for your manuscript to be uncovered because you know it's going to be read. You send it into this, yeah. it is going to be read. So make sure that, you know, if, if this is you, if this has been your dream and you're sitting there shyly wondering whether, you know, your stuff is good enough or whatever it is, do not be shy. This is not a time for shyness. This is a time for no. I am going to have a go at this. Absolutely. So make sure you have mm. a go. Now, another link that we've got for you is, <clears throat> it's actually on the Australian Writer Centre blog, and it's called Nine Ways to Squash Your Shyness at Literary Speaking Events. Speaking of shyness, because, we're obviously having a shyness oh, thing is, here today. Yeah, I mean, it's such a real thing, though, because when I started going to literary events, you know, writers' festivals or conferences and that mm. kind of thing, even though I was told by everyone by all and sundry that the value is not just about the stuff that you learn from the people on stage but the value is in connecting mm. with people whether that's connecting with the speakers or publishers or just the people around you because it's great to be able to connect with the people around you because you never know what kind of wonderful support or friendships or community you can build with just the people who are around you who are not on the stage and there were so many events that I used to go to where I just didn't talk to anyone I can, or I talked to mm. one person because I, w I went up to a presenter or a speaker and, and chatted to them. But there were so many where I just hid away in my little world or I made sure I was always busy or I made sure I was, you know, writing in my journal or I made sure I was reading a book, answering the phone or I don't know, something and not really connecting with people because I didn't quite know how to, how to break mm. the ice, how to, how to even approach somebody to talk. Um, but so this is a really good post because it's extremely practical and it addresses those things. And it even gives you some examples of small talk that you can start with, right? So if you're sitting next to somebody, you, uh, um, you know, waiting for the session to start, you can always start talking, just break open a conversation with the person next to you, not like, oh, hot day today. Hot weather we're having. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, you know, have you read any of the books of the people who are speaking or, or what did you think of the latest book or have you heard this person speak before or, you know, I whatever. Think the thing, I reckon the thing about these things that you, everybody needs to bear in mind is that you all mm. have something, you're, you're there for a reason. You're either there because you're keen mm. on writing or you're keen on reading. You've got books in common. You've got the author in common. You know, that you've, you've got a ready-made basis for conversation mm. because it's not like you've kind of turned at the like having done many many years of turning up at the parent mixer or the whatever when you might end up chatting to someone and the only thing you have in common is that you both have five-year-olds which trust me is not <laughs> necessarily a huge amount to have in common um but here yes. like this is you're there because you're interested in this thing and that means the person next to you is also there because they are interested in this thing i have met i can honestly say i have met three of my dearest dearest friends by striking up some random conversation with them at a writer's yeah. event, some at a conference, yes. at a festival, cracking a joke about, you know, what I hoped was a joke. Sometimes, you know, jokes can be not funny. They're <laughs> only funny to you. But, you know, if the person, if you make, if you crack a joke and the person next to you laughs, then you, you're in, you're there, aren't you? Because yes, the sense of humour right. is the same. You're looking at these things the same way. Um, so, you know, I have met these people. We are dear friends. We continue to support each other with our writing and with our various, you know, things in life. And I, it is, it, it, I cannot recommend it highly enough because, you know, writers are fantastic people. Readers are fantastic mm. people. So don't be shy. 
That's right. And there are even more suggestions in this post, uh, including how to make the most of food. Oh, of course. <laughs> because food, the food area is always a great section to, a, a great spot to start a conversation. Um, also hanging out in the bookstore because there'll be other people who might be uh, looking at books and they're obviously not talking to anyone either, but you've got a common interest. Maybe you're going to be reaching for the same book or you're in the same genre section or you're, you're looking at the same author, have a chat to them. You can always talk to the organisers in terms of the um, uh, the volunteers particularly because they're there to be friendly. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like we're um, setting people up for dating here. Like we just, just go well, find you your, go find know, your right? new <laughs> But a great way is also to sign up for mm. workshops because you're in a smaller environment where usually interactivity is encouraged. There are a whole heap of other um, useful tips in this post which you can find on the Writer Centre blog at writercenter.com.au slash blog, but we'll put the direct link in the show notes as well. So now let's move on to our competition this week, something a bit different. We have got three copies of Salvation Lost by Peter F. Hamilton, and Peter is considered Britain's number one science fiction writer. And you can win one of these three copies. In the 23rd century, humanity is enjoying a comparative utopia, yet life on Earth is about to change forever. Ferriton Kane's investigative team has discovered the worst threat ever to face mankind, and we've almost no time to fight back. Some factions push for humanity to flee, to live in hiding amongst the stars, although only a chosen few would make it out in time. But others refuse to break before the storm. As disaster looms, animosities must be set aside to focus on just one goal, wiping the enemy from the face of creation, even if it means preparing for a future this generation will never see. Goodness. Whoa. Gosh. Wow. Okay. So if you'd like your chance to win a copy, go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. Entries close on the 25th of November. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. All right. So now, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? See, that's got to go on our podcast bingo. Okay, right there. <laughs> I'm... I'm ready, Val. I'm, I was born ready. Okay. Now, I actually researched how you pronounce this before this podcast, but of course, all that information has left my brain. So I'm going to give it a go anyway. Borborygmus. Borborygmus. That's B-O-R-B-O-R-Y-G-M-U-S. Borborygmus. Now, this word comes from via talented writer Liz Foster, thank you, who brought it to my attention. Any idea what it is? No. no. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard of it. This is a cool word. Borborygmus, and it's plural, borborygmi, <laughs> borborygmi, refers to, <laughs> rumbling or gurgling caused by the movement of gas in the intestines. <laughs> So next time you experience your tummy making bizarre noises when you least expect, now you know it's borborygmus. Borborygmus. There you go. Thanks for that, Liz. You've really enlightened my day there. there you I'm, go. I'm totally pulling that out next time it happens. Don't mind me. It's just my borborygmus. Yes. Now, um, shall we move on to our writer in I think residence? we probably should, really. Okay, so um, our writer in residence is none other than Christian Ooh. White, and he has released a cracker of a book um, called The Wife and the Widow. His first book was The Nowhere Child, which went on to win all these awards. And was and, terrific. You know, it was really terrific. And was terrific. And uh, he has now written his much-awaited second book, The Wife and the Widow. Let's have a chat to Christian White. Christian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on your second novel, The Thank Wife and the Widow. And it's if it's going to be as successful as your first one, it's just going to go through the roof. 
which fingers um, crossed. Yeah. <laughs> so, just for some of the readers who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Oh, yeah, sure. So, the wife and the widow—it's a—it's uh, a mystery told from two different perspectives: the the wife of a man who disappears and the wife of a man accused of uh, murder. And it's set in kind of a set in a little sleepy seaside coastal town, but in the dead of winter. It's one of these towns where. You know, in the summer, it's really touristy and it's bustling with summer people. But in the winter, all those people just sort of drift away and there's all these big empty holiday houses. And, you know, it's sort of based on um, it's a fictional town called Belport on a fictional island. But it's loosely based on the area where I'm living at the minute, which is Ocean Grove on the Bellarine Peninsula. And it's, and it's just that during summer, it's, um, you know, it's crazy. You can't find a park and, and everyone. The beaches are packed. But in winter, it's just it's, it takes on a different uh, feeling and there's a, there's a sort of a, a fun eeriness about it that I really wanted to, um, to capture. And I think everyone knows a town like that. So it's, it was pretty exciting to set something um, in a place like that. Mm. And how did you come up with the premise of this book? Um, I think it was, you know, it's, it's difficult. I think, you know, one of the things, the way I sort of get ideas is really they just – pop into my head. But then as I sort of examine them further, I begin to kind of uh, maybe decide, sort of discover where they came from subconsciously. And I think with this, uh, you know, it's all about these these women who learn a whole load of secrets about the people that, uh, are, you know, about their husbands. And it sort of asks this question, you know, how well do we really know the people we love, which is obviously something I guess that I'm fascinated with because, you know, my first book, The Nowhere Child, really deals with that kind of question as well. And, you know, it's weird, but I think it, I think it's seeded in a really weird way from a really weird place. I, my wife uh, is into amateur taxidermy, right, which sounds completely bizarre. And it's, you know, it's sort of explored in the book. Uh, yes. and, but she didn't reveal that to me until we're kind of deep in our relationship. So we just moved in together into this little flat uh, and, you know, I was, I was helping her unpack her things and, and there was this sort of cooler container, you know, an esky. And I was putting away, you know, the what she brought from her previous house, which was, you know, frozen veggies and ice cream and stuff like that. And then I came across this, this you know, weird plastic bag, this kind of solid shape in a plastic bag. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I kind of opened it to peek inside. And first I saw... Uh, I remember very clearly, first I saw, you know, brown fur, mm-hmm. and then I saw an eye looking back at me, and and, I, and then suddenly, like a horror movie, she, she sort of appeared behind me over my shoulder, and, what are you doing, you know, and, and I kind of, I said, what, what, what is this, what? and she said, oh, I'm into amateur taxidermy, and I thought, who the hell is this woman? Who have I invited into my home and into my life, you know, so it, ever since then, I've been kind of, it's a, such a, a compelling concept, you know, she was into amateur taxidermy, which, you know, isn't the worst thing. But what if, you know, what if you discovered your loved one was a murderer or they had, um, you know, all these secrets that, um, you know, that kind of changed the way you thought of them. And there's something, I don't know, really fascinating and terrifying about that. Um, you know, the book opens with uh, Kate, who who's, you know, uh, waiting for her husband to arrive home from a business trip. She's at an airport waiting for him to arrive. And he doesn't show up, which is kind of creepy enough. But then she calls his work and says, um, you know, has there, there been a misunderstanding? You know, he was meant to land at this certain time. And they say, oh, no, he hasn't worked here for three months. You know, and there's something about that that's just so terrifying to me. And, you know, just, just something that we, we uh, you know, well, I do anyway. I depend so much on the people that are closest to me. And just to have that kind of rug pulled out from underneath me is one of probably my biggest fear. So I guess it's all about um, – all about exploring that. But like I said, that wasn't, you know, I, I, I never went into it um, with that in mind, not consciously. Anyway, I just kind of follow the story. Uh, you know, recently I um, had this interview with some, uh, had sort of a meeting with some producers uh, about, you know, an adaptation of the first book, The Nowhere Child. And they said, um, you know, I really love that every character you've written is going through an identity crisis. And I, and I said to them, well, yes, you know, and I made up this big lie, but really that was completely by accident. So I think that uh, all I do is follow the characters in the story and I think that hopefully all that other stuff, um, you know, is intuitive, all yes. those things. Yeah. 
Firstly, I think that that's awesome how you incorporated your wife's taxidermy in sort of like one of the characters. Um, now, the as you say, it opens with this scene of Kate at the airport and husband doesn't turn up. Then subsequently she discovers he hasn't worked at his workplace for the last three months. So, of course, that is a scary scenario to find yourself in and a very stressful one. But how did you then think, did you first start with that scenario and then have to find the answer or did you already know what was what the husband had been doing um, when you wrote that scenario? Yeah, when, I, when that sort of idea popped into my head, I had zero idea what the husband had been up to. I just, um, you know, similar with, the, similar with the Nowhere Child, you know, where you know, the first kind of that idea popped into my head as one single scene, which was, you know, a woman gets approached by a man who says, oh, I think you were kidnapped as a little girl, you know, who you, who you think your parents are, your kidnappers. The very same thing for this. I had this very, very clear image of this woman waiting at the airport and waiting and waiting and waiting. And you know, it's that, that feeling so well, because, yes. you know, every time you pick someone up from the airport, eventually they come out of those doors. But it, there is this weird uh I don't know, this weird fear. And, and I think that th that came to me very early. And then th first it was the idea of just someone not turning up and then chasing that up. And then I thought, yeah, what would logically, what would you do? You'd, you'd call his work. And then the scariest thing you could hear is, oh no, uh, he's, he's, he's not been here for three months. So all of a sudden you're thinking, where is he now? But where the hell has he been? You know, and, and there was something. And, and so what I had to do then is just kind of um, <laughs> figure out the rest. And the way I kind of work is, I actually have these little, uh, you know, I can call them research now but re because I'm an, an official bona fide writer, but really there's just these sort of topics that I procrastinate with where I, are these little obsessions I get that I try to kind of just bring into the story. So I, I knew I wanted this little setting, this little island town. Uh, so I knew I wanted somehow it, for it to connect, you know, for it to connect there. I knew, uh, I knew I wanted to add a little flavor of taxidermy. <laughs> I also knew um, – I'm going to be annoyingly vague now because it's a spoiler, but I also knew where the story does end up going. I knew vaguely that I wanted to head in that direction, but I had, I had no idea how it would get there. Right. So essentially you had to fill in the journey in between. So when you set about doing that, do you plot it out or do you kind of just write and see where the characters take you and hope that they take you into a place that makes sense? How do you actually, on a practical level work out all of the bits so that it's um, makes sense and is satisfying and believable for the reader? Well, I kind of do a bit of both. So firstly, I, I, I do plan a lot, and but usually what happens, what's happened with the first two books anyway, is that I have what I think is an airtight, really compelling plot from beginning to end. You know, I spend quite a bit of time going through, ironing it out, and certain scenes come to me and, and there's little bits and pieces, but then inevitably – about halfway through, the characters generally just take over, uh, which seems kind of a, a pretentious thing to say, but they really do, you know, have a mind of their own. But also it's sort of, um, you know, you get to know them better as you write them. You know, when, you, when you're planning, really you're just thinking about the plot and your characters will do anything you want to service that plot. But when you, when you get into the weeds, you realise, oh, they wouldn't necessarily do those things. You know, the example I use is um, you might have this great idea for a scene where, where – a character runs into a burning building to rescue a photo album and it happens toward the end of the book and it means that because of this cool scene, X, Y, and Z will happen after and it's going to be amazing. But when you reach that scene, you've got to know that character better and you know, oh, she would never run into a burning building. That's just not her, you know. So I think that my rule, and it can be a very, very frustrating rule, but it's to always follow the character. You know, if I'm reading a book or, or watching a TV show or a movie, I think characters are allowed to do stupid things because we all do stupid things. But if they do something so out of character and so plot serving that you can see the writers, you know, you can see the writer's fingerprints that, you know, that, that the characters are servicing the plot, I completely disengage straight away. So I'm really, 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 really conscious of that. And what ends up happening, what's happened so far anyway, is that your characters kind of lead you to more interesting and unpredictable places. And I think that, you can't, there is an element of letting things happen. You know, Stephen King describes writing as 
a, sort of an archaeological dig site where the, the bones and the, the, the fossils just under the dirt, you've just got to brush it away and, and find the story. So there's certainly an element, um, an element of that. But I think I'm also, because I'm sort of a nervous writer, I, I need to make that plot just as a safety net for myself. You know, amazing writers like, you know, Michael Robotham, he, he won't plan anything. He just sits down and writes it and goes for it. And they, it turns out wonderfully. And I'm just too scared to do that. And I think ultimately, quite often, my the exercise of writing a plan is just to give myself a safety net, something to refer back to just if I get too scared, you know? Interesting. So you let the characters take you where they should go, but you feel this need for the safety net. Now, when you have your safety net, though, when you are – clearly you've said you, you create a – watertight plot whether or not it ends up like that it's another thing but you you start with that at the outset so when you plot that out um how long does that take you and to what level are you plotting it you know are you doing it scene by scene are you doing it by chapter are you doing kind of vaguely this is one page of the plot yeah what level of plotting usually you know it's funny because usually I'll spend um well, the time really varies dramatically. You know, with The Nowhere Child, I probably spent, you know, a week plotting. Uh, with with the second book, The Wife and the Widow, I spent a lot more plotting. I actually went back and plotted every now and then. And usually what happens is my document, my plotting document will look like this. It'll have, um, you know, for example, uh, prologue. And it'll have this very, very detailed prologue. And it's all these great, these, these images that come to my mind. And then it'll say chapter one and it'll get a little bit lighter in detail. And by the end of it, it's just dot points. You know, I, I get, I, it's like that first day, remember that first day of school where you would get out your, you know, I went to school sort of, there were computers around, but I wrote in a textbook, I'm 38. And I remember, um, you know, that first day of class, you would rule up the page really nice, you'd write really well, but by the end of it, you're just throwing everything in there. And it's kind of like that with the plot where by the end of it, it's shorthand. And I'm just leaving. There's certain there's certain scenes that I'll flesh out if they come to my mind at the time, but other scenes I kind of I I, I very much depend on the future version of myself to figure that out when I get there. And, and and every now and then that's annoying because sometimes I will you know I'll I'll fudge a plot point and you know I'll, I'll say something like you know David figures out that Celeste was there that night, and then I get to that point I'm like well how the hell is he going to figure that out? So sometimes it's uh it's problematic, but usually. The, the, the trouble is there's these conflicting parts of my brain where I'm, I really want to plot it out to be safe, but the other part of me just wants to start writing. And the more you plot, the more you feel, the, the deeper you get into the story and the more excited you get and the more you just want to put, uh, you know, not pen to paper, but, you know, fingertips to, to keys, uh, you know, you want to, that, that urge gets stronger and stronger. So usually, yeah, usually in the first half of my plot, really detailed second half it's like i'm just banging it out to get to the to get to the, the writing process because i mean that's the best you know that's the best part i, I um you know I'm, I'm lucky in the fact that I, i've never really suffered for you know touch wood never suffered from a writer's block or anything like that my, my output has never been my problem I, I love the craft of it my problem has always been on the other end of things showing people my work and and you know getting over that that fear that fear of failure and fear of people you know thinking you're a fraud, uh, that's always the stuff I struggle with. So the, the actual writing is so, so fun to me that I'm often in a rush uh, a rush to get there. God knows if I've answered your question. I feel no, like I'm no, re- you have, <laughs> you have. Well, can you give me like a just a vague timeline of when you came up with the premise of this book and then, you know, your plotting period and then your first draft period and, and so on, just so that people can get an idea of the gestation from yeah. idea to now kind of thing. Yeah, of course. Well, well, you know, th- this was um, – The Wife and the Widow was very different from The Nowhere Child because with The Nowhere Child I had a million years to write it mm. because there was no expectations. I didn't think it would ever really be published. I hoped it would. Um, but there was a sort of a freedom in that. But with this – I had this wonderful problem, which was, you know, the first book was received really well and there were people waiting for another one. I had a deadline. So all of a sudden I had a deadline and an audience, which were two huge things that I didn't have with the first book. So I had only, I only had a year to write the second book. Um, the first book uh, took me 
probably three three plus years to write. So, so automatically it was um you know it was it was a tighter turnaround. I had the luxury though of you know, it's my full-time job now, so I could just focus on it. Uh, but I knew that I had to work quickly for that deadline. So I, I'd say I probably plotted for um, probably for a week or two. And then I wrote uh, a near complete first draft. And I, again, I'm going to have to be vague here, but I, I had this kind of, I have a, there's a, there's a significant twist in the book and that I won't mention, but I knew very early on that I wanted that twist, but I had no idea how I was going to pull it off. And I kind of, I kind of thought, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. I'll figure it out when I get there. And then I got to it and I didn't figure it out. So after my first draft, which probably took um, maybe three months, Mm. I went back and I plotted again and again. And actually the answer came, uh, I was, I was all ready to abandon the twist and, you know, I was, I was freaking out really saying, well, I've, I've wasted all this time and what am I going to do now and all this sort of stuff. And then I, um, I have this very good resource. My wife, Summer, is a born storyteller. You know, her, her um, it's in her blood. Her father was a, a very prolific screenwriter in the, the 70s and 80s. He wrote all oh, these, these ridiculously insane horror movies like um, Razorback and Long Weekend and oh, yeah. Patrick. And, and, and so it's in her blood. And, um, so often when I'm desperate, I will throw a load of questions at her. And that's what I did this time. We went for a walk around this lake uh, near where we live. And I said, you know, I've got this real problem. This is what I want to achieve. But I have no idea how to. And I kind of laid it all out for her. And she just said, uh, she was kind of quiet for a few steps. And then she said, well, what if this happens and then this happens, which would mean this happens? And it was so wonderfully annoying because that was the answer. It was all laid out. You know, absolutely. So, so as soon as I had that, kind of key that, that just unlocked you know unlocked so much so then I went back to the drawing board and I think it was um I'm trying to think probably another couple of months you know addressing because what you need to do is when you reach when you figure out that twist and make it work then you need to go back and make it look like you had that in your mind all along which yeah. quite or quite often you don't with the first book I had a completely different ending in mind so you know so I had to go back and do that and then um then the editorial editorial process lasted probably two months. So it really, um, it moved so. Do you quickly. mean the structural edit? Is that the, yeah. Well, the structural the structural edit probably lasted. Um, we probably went back and forth for about a month, mm-hmm. uh, and then the then all then the copy edit was was probably another month. Sure, um, yeah. But yeah, it was it was su- such a tight turnaround that you know the time between. The time between when I found out the Nowhere Child was going to be published and actually being published, I think was about six months or maybe even a little bit longer. So I had time to kind of step back from it and, and, and think about it and, and appreciate it. But this book, I, I think this was based partly because there was such a tight turnaround, but also partly because, you know, I wrote it assuming it would expose me as the fraud. I really am. You know, I was convinced. <laughs> uh, so I think that, that maybe that was part of it. But I really – Right toward the end, I, I had no idea. I remember saying to my editor, "This is this is good, isn't it?" And she was like, "Yeah, this is good. This is good." I, had, I really had no idea because I I hadn't had that chance to sort of step back from the canvas, and I had I lost perspective. And, and you know, now I um, you know, it really it took a few. Uh, you know, it's been well received, thank God. You know, and people are saying that it's better than the first one, which is exactly what I wanted to hear. Mm. But it wasn't until I heard those voices and heard those opinions that. I sort of relaxed a little bit because I was, re- I really just had no idea. And, and, and sometimes it's like that when you write, you, you know, certain things, you know, okay, this, this is working. I know this is a cool idea and I know this is strong, but every now and then you think, I have no idea. I have no idea if it's good or not. And it's a terrifying, mm. it's a terrifying sort of thing that you need. You just need that time, which we didn't have on this one. So this is the second novel and how much, did pressure play into it because not only is it your second novel and obviously you want to prove that it wasn't a one-hit wonder, the previous one wasn't a one-hit wonder, but the first one was so ridiculously well-received and and well-deserved, obviously, but, you know, that adds even more pressure onto it. Did you feel that? And if so, how did you manage that? Yeah, I I definitely felt it. So I I get all these... um you know, wonderful emails from readers around the world and they're absolute, most of them are absolutely beautiful and kind and say lovely things. But most of them would, would, would sign off with a variation of, 
can't wait for your next book. Mm. And slowly but surely, that I'd sort of developed a bit of an anxiety. I, I never did this, but I felt like writing back saying, well, you know, don't get your hopes up. Maybe it'll be terrible. You know, I, this, I wanted to manage their expectations. So, yeah, this, this intense pressure. And, um, you know, imposter syndrome, I think a lot of writers have imposter syndrome. And it's sort of this, this beast that I think it can be it can be tormenting, but it can, it's also slightly necessary, I think. Like, you know, having this fear, having this imposter syndrome makes you strive to be a better writer and makes you, you know, aim to, for the story to be better and everything. But it can also, yeah, be debilitating because, it get, you know, if you let it get too loud, that voice in your head, uh, you know, you just start second-guessing everything. There was a period, you know, about the first half of the writing process for me, I really, I felt a lot of pressure and felt a lot of anxiety about it. And it was hard to talk to people about it because, I kind of feel it'd be like, oh yeah, big problems. You've got, you've got a good successful first book, you know, thanks asshole. You know, so I really was worried, you know, it was hard to talk about, but, um, I did start to talk about it and somewhere along the way, I, I managed to kind of keep those voices at bay. And it was because I kind of leaned into this, this is going to make me sound very pretentious, but I have, you know, I call it my writing philosophy and my writing philosophy is just to write things that I would want to read myself. Yeah. I think somewhere in the, in the in the first half of the writing process, I I sort of lost sight of that and I'd become obsessed with, oh, is it too much like the first book? Is it not enough like the first book? And then as soon as I leaned into that, you know, that re, that my little writing philosophy, I was kind of able to keep all the voices at bay. Of course, they came rushing back as soon as I was done. But yeah, that was really, um, you know, that was how I managed it. You know, I, I've signed for my third book now, a third and fourth book with a, a firm press now, and. I've been asking authors, you know, I do panels with amazing authors and I've been asking them, oh, you know, so, so I assume it gets better after the second book. Second book's really hard, third book's easy, right? And they all just sort of shake their head and, and you know, I need to get comfortable being uncomfortable is the message basically. Mm-hmm. But as I say, it's a, really, it's a really wonderful problem to have. And I think with the second book, I, I was lucky that, I, that it's been well received because it is kind of a – it's still a mystery thriller, but, but it is – it is a different. It is quite a different story than the first one, and I think that what that allows me now is the freedom to write something different again for the third one. You know, I'll stick to the same genre at least for a while, but it, um, it's sort of about that as well. I think that there's a lot of pressure on the second book, not just because you want people to like it, but also you're kind of setting yourself up then as. Uh, you know, if you're not a one-hit wonder, what kind of writer are you going to be and what can an audience expect from your writing? And, and there's a lot of that sort of things that I think, you know, that are thumping around your head uh, consciously and subconsciously. So I think that um, mm. I do think uh, – now, I'll probably – next year I'll probably be saying the third one was impossible, but I do think the third one will be a little easier, at least in that sense. And I've also um, negotiated myself two years to write the, the next right. one. So at least I'll have a little bit more breathing room. So you've also um, worked as a screenwriter. Now, that's a very different kind of process and maybe that's where your, you know, um, your plotting thing comes from because that has to be often, you know, screenplays are plotted out within an inch of their life, yes. almost scene by scene. How do you – what's the difference in the process for you is it more liberating to write in this way? Is one more enjoyable than the other? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're really different beasts. And I, and I find myself, they're both enjoyable in their own ways, but screenwriting is definitely, um, you know, they're, they're both really collaborative. So even, even writing a book is very collaborative because you're, you know, you're working with your publisher and your editor and, in my case, my wife. I'm getting ideas off my wife. Um, but screenwriting is collaborative in a way that, you, you are you are you are part of the finished product, but it's often not necessarily your vision or, or your your even in particular your voice, but you are you need to find parts of yourself to bring to it, and that can be really exciting and compelling because you you work with all these other amazing writers and you kind of you feel you get this feeling that you're working together to build something bigger. But with writing a book, it you write a finished product. You know, with a script, you you hand it on to someone else, and it's a document to to give to producers and actors and all that sort of stuff and funding bodies. But with a book, you, you, you have something finished and whole that is, is really completely yours. And so I think that for me, that's a much more, it's a sort of more satisfying end result. And I think that 
I think the process is similar. You know, obviously writing a novel is a lot harder. It takes, there's a lot more work involved, but you can definitely, uh, you know, the skills I've learned in screenwriting, I definitely use them when I'm writing novels. You know, for example, every time I finish a, uh, a chapter, I imagine in my head that it's going to a commercial break. You know, so you want the audience to come back after the commercial break, so it needs to be a big enough hook, you know. So, so yeah. I, there's a lot of that sort of stuff involved. And, of course, the obvious stuff, you know, the, the, um, the dialogue and, you know, with screenwriting, you need to be really uh, economic in the way you write. You know, you need to sort of really get the, get the message across with a few, as few words as you can. And I think that um, that makes for a compelling thriller when you're reading a novel and if there's not enough, not too much, uh, not too much fluff, as I call it, uh, you know, it just reads faster and it reads better. Having said that, I still put in a lot of fluff. My editor, you know, she she takes out a lot of stuff that's just you know rubbish and filler. But but it's it's sort of you know you start to see those sort of things and little things like you know when you're writing a script, you never need you, you'll never show someone. Uh, you know, walking into a room and leaving a room, the audience just knows they they can figure that part out for yeah. themselves. So I always I'm always thinking about that, uh, and often in my first drafts, I will you know pretty much every time every single chapter, the first paragraph usually ends up getting cut yes. because often this sort of you're setting the scene and you you don't realize until later that well you don't even really need that. Readers are very very you know we're really smart, and I think that what you do in when you write a script, and certainly what I do in novels is that it's, it's just as important what you decide to keep out. You know, I think that uh, recently I got a, an email from someone who, you know, the first book is set predominantly in Kentucky. And I got an email from someone from Kentucky who had moved away and it said, you know, writing those, reading those Kentucky scenes, it reminded me of home, you know, and I sent back, thank you very much. But really that's, I just cheated. I was, I just sort of left out enough information and the reader filled me in. I think, I think reading is such a, it's such an interactive pastime, you know. When you watch a movie or watch TV, it's it's really passive. Everything, all the work's being done for you. Where, but when you read a book, you, your imagination is conjuring up all these things, and that's why I think you know it's way more rewarding to read a book. But it also, I don't know, you can really play with that. And the, and the two mediums, the, the screen and the and the novels, that kind of yeah, it kind of feeds into one another. That's why I say whenever anyone asks me, you know, what should I study if I want to be a novelist. I often say study screenwriting because it's it really just teaches you uh, you know it teaches you things you already know in a way because we're we're, we're view, as viewers and readers we're we're pretty in tune to story and and but sometimes it's just about talking about those things and being taught those things that you you recognize them more and you can just play with them a bit more and, and I think that's um yeah that's 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 how it's worked for me anyway. I think the screen experience, um, yes, you you can tell that you have that kind of background because of the things that you've said. And I can already see this as a miniseries and even one of your characters, their last name is already Keddy. So I think you've just sorted out, (laughs) sorted. Was that that too subtle? Was that, I mean, was that subtle enough? (laughs) Now, can you just give listeners a little bit of an idea, apart from screenwriting, just a really brief potted history of your career so far? So you're 38, um, just so that people can get an idea of what you've been doing till till now, now that you are full-time writing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm 38, but I've only been full-time writing for probably two years. Mm-hmm. I spent a good chunk of uh, what was, you know, a good chunk of my, all of my 20s and a good chunk of my 30s trying to be a writer, trying to make it. I, I had a very um, you know, very clear idea when I was young that I would be a published successful writer by the age of 25. And I was very surprised when 25 came and went uh, and I still wasn't this published successful writer, you know. So I, I really just kept slogging away. And in the meantime, I worked a million casual jobs. You know, I've worked for um, – I picked apples for a while. I drove a little food cart around a golf course selling sandwiches. I worked uh, this, you know, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a disgusting person, but for a couple of years I worked as a video editor at an adult film company, uh, which is crazy. Another whole chapter of my life that doesn't seem real when I remember it. Um, But all that time I was just kind of, yeah, I was just kind of slogging away, finding hours to write after hours and, and at work when I could and on weekends and uh, you know, it was funny because somewhere along the way, this very clear image, uh, I was always fantasizing about being published and, and, you know, being successful and being really not even successful, just being making enough from my writing to, to work from home full time. Mm-hmm. And, but somewhere along the way, I, 
yeah, this image came to me, which was me and I'm like 96, 97 and I'm dead. And my grandkids are cleaning out my assisted living unit, you know, and there's this drawer that they open and there's this big pile of dusty, cobwebby, unpublished manuscripts, you know. And, and as soon as that image came to me, I thought, that's not the end of the world. You know, if that's my fate, then that's kind of a cool thing. I'm just going to keep writing. And it was funny that as soon as I stopped writing to be a writer and just was writing for the joy of it, that's really when things began to change for me, you know, and I think that, yeah, it, it was weird. You know, people say, um, you know, how long did it take to write The Nowhere Child? And like I said, it took two or three years, but really it took 15, 16, 17 years because I had to kind of write so much bad stuff during that period. And I just kind of had to find my voice. And so, yeah, really I spent a good chunk of time just slogging away and, um, and hoping I would make it, but really, you know, my, my happiness didn't depend on that. I decided very early on that um, I kind of what success meant for me. And I kind of decided I was happy working casual jobs and just supporting my writing habit. It's like a drug habit. You know, I was, I was, I was very happy to kind of um, to kind of do that. Obviously, I was way happy to actually get published and, you know, make a living out of it, of course. But yeah, it was, um, I, I just kind of kept going. And yeah, now that it's, it's 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 an absolute gift that I get to do this full time now, of course. Uh, but really, it's uh, yeah, it was just kind of um, now I get to do full time what I had to do, what I had to fit into little uh, corners of my time. Yeah. So it sort of it was looking back, it was good because it taught you, kind of taught me not to be not to be, uh, you know, I, I couldn't be precious with my time. Um, you know, I, I, I might have an hour here and there and I had to make that work, you know. Um, and, it, and it sort of taught me accountability too. I just knew that sort of I could do it or I couldn't. You know, what's the, um, uh, you know, it taught me accountability. I couldn't, if I didn't do it, well, it's on me. If that makes sense, you know, it was just, yeah, I, if I was going to do it, I had to do it myself. And, and that's what that sort of era of my life taught me. So when you are in the thick of writing, so, you know, after you've plotted and you're doing the first draft, like when you spent those three months doing the first draft, do you have some kind of writing routine? Like, you know, do you have to go have to a particular cafe to kick off the day? Do you um, ensure that you reach a certain word count? Do you have to write in a particular spot? Uh, What does that look like on a practical level? Yeah, so for me, I generally work from home, uh, you know, 15 feet from my bed with my dog. So it's a super comfort zone, you know. Um, and I do have word counts, but they're very, they vary. So if I'm writing a first draft, I will try to get at least a 1,000 words done a day. And I usually try to do a little bit more just to kind of feel a bit more productive. When I'm doing a second draft, I find I usually try to do 1,500 or 2,000 just because I find it's – uh, second draft is much easier because you've, you've sort of, or for me anyway, I've, I've got out all the, I've got, a, got everything out onto the page. I've vomited it out onto the page and now it's just this fun thing of making that good. You know what I find that I'm much quicker at doing that. Um, and also I do this thing that my, uh, my, my father, he's passed away now, but my father-in-law, you know, my wife's dad, who I was talking about earlier, who was a writer, he taught me this great thing where he said, he ends every writing day right before a scene that he's really excited to write. And that, and I do that every single day. So I'll write up to a scene that, you know, there's certain scenes that I'm just, I can't wait to get, you know, sink my teeth into. And I always write up to right before that scene. So first thing in the morning, I'm, I'm anxious to jump out of bed and, and, and jump onto the computer and get into it. So I think that, um, yeah, I think that's really important too. I also sort of, I find I do, my best work in the morning and, and I'm at my computer all day, but I'm also don't, I don't give myself a hard time. Uh, you know, if I've reached my word count, that's okay. You know, if in, if in the afternoon I procrastinate, you know, usually what will end up happening is I'll get on YouTube with sort of good intentions. I will think, okay, I'm going to research something and then YouTube comes up and before I've even typed anything in, there's 16 videos that I have to watch. And YouTube knows this. <laughs> yes. It knows it so well. And it's like Bigfoot caught on trail cam. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, now I've got to watch that video. And it just – so I usually um, – my afternoon is often I get stuck, stuck into that. But I've learned not to give myself a hard time about that because, you know, early on when I was working full-time as a writer, I – I put this pressure on myself to, you know, nine to five. It's a proper job now. You've got to be at your computer. You've got to be working. And it just doesn't do – my mind just doesn't do that. You know, I get probably 
three or four really good writing hours a day. And they're sort of spaced out often. But beyond that, I can feel, I've, I've sort of, and, and most writers can probably do this, you can kind of feel when you, there's a, there's a shift in your brain and all of a sudden you're writing rubbish. I, can, oh, I know straight away, as soon as I start writing rubbish, it's usually about the 2, 2.30 mark and i like, okay, I'm going to stop and just step away. And I think that's just as important, I think, not, not putting, um, not giving yourself too hard a time. Um, and now what you've obviously got your third and fourth um, book contracted, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank and you. you've got a bit more time. Have you already thought about what your third book is about? Yeah, well, I actually have, I have what I think at the moment is a very, very great, solid, wonderful airtight plan for the third book. Oh, I've, already? I've, yeah, I've plotted that out. But as I said before, it will get sure. derailed about halfway through. But I won't start writing it until probably January, I think. I'm going to give myself a little. Right. I've been working on um, you know, working on some, some screenwriting projects. I'm sort of going to focus on that. And then come the new year, I'm going to get stuck into it. And try, I'm going to have, try not to think about it the plot anyway between now and then uh, to see how it settles. But, yeah, as always happens, I'll get back to it and think, oh, this is fantastic, and I'll get halfway through and realise, well, actually, that plot point doesn't make sense and this is better. And so I'm, so I'm sort of I'm, 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 ready to, I'm ready to get started properly, but I am still early stages. And finally, what's your top three tips to aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day, being able to write full-time? I think that... So, so my, my, my top three, number, number three and two would be, and this is very boring, these are very boring ones, uh, which is to read a lot and write a lot. Yeah. I think that it's sort of this thing where, you know, you ask someone, oh, how do I lose weight? And the, the boring answer is you've got to eat well and exercise. And it sucks because it's boring. But that's really, um, that, that's really the, 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 the secret, I think. And number one, and I'm not sure if this is specific to me, but number one for me was do not wait until your work is perfect to send it off. If you're thinking about sending it off on a, to an agent or a publisher, uh, just do it because your work is never going to be perfect. And I wasted years and years and years before I showed anyone anything, you know, the Nowhere Child was actually the fifth manuscript I attempted and the second one I finished and only the first I even showed anyone. So mm. uh, I think that's a really good thing to remember. And it's terrifying. But what I've learned is that, you know, editors and publishers and agents, no one's looking for the perfect story. They're all looking for a good story that they can help make better. So I think that if you're thinking about it and you're, you're stressing about making it perfect, just send it off. You know, my, my manuscript of The Nowhere Child, it was, the basics were there, but I had misspelt waste wrong every single time. Every, <laughs> uh, every second scene, someone was walking on crunchy dead leaves. It was, there was so many mistakes. It was riddled with mistakes. So don't, just don't wait until it's perfect because it never, ever will be perfect. That's my, my number one tip. All right, awesome. Um, congratulations on The Wife and the Widow and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. There you go, Christian White. That was just really great fun to talk to him. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's a very talented writer and it's, mm. it's I love... The fact that he's, you know, I think he even says in the book at the end, the acknowledgements, you know, how difficult that second book uh, can be. And uh, I think he's probably quite relieved to have it behind him, but he did a great job with it. And, yeah. you know, well done, Christian. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Now we're almost at the end of this week's episode, which we realise we've dropped a little late because we had a little, you know, scheduling issues because of life and stuff. 
Well, we um, uh, look honestly. The fact I, the fact of the way that our like schedules have been, <laughs> I'm surprised that we've even managed to have this conversation. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, anyway, where can we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes at soyouwanttobeataWriter.com.au. And most importantly, make sure you join us, hang out with us. It's like a virtual mm-hmm. party. Join mm-hmm. the Facebook group of listeners. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It's free to join. We'd love to have you in there. And it's just full of really awesome people. So... Mm. You need to be in it. All right. To win it. So to speak. <laughs> we've got like we had we've on like Donkey Kong and we you like you're full of all the sayings today, Al. I just feel like I, yeah, like obviously my competitive streak is coming out or something. I don't know. I'm not sure. All not right. Sure. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>